what is the most glorious thing that you've ever seen? Your bride walking down the aisle, the birth of a child. Perhaps you've seen a wonder of the world. Maybe your sports team winning a championship. West Virginia's time is coming. Perhaps it's something as simple as a sunrise or a sunset. Maybe the dew on the grass in the morning as you hold a nice ceramic mug of coffee and you just breathe in that glory. Maybe it's the gentle glow of a fire in the winter. What's the most glorious thing you've ever beheld? Everything in this world has a a glory to it, all of those good things. They have a, a peculiar glory. And it's glory that is but an echo of that greater glory to which they are designed to draw us. The glory of God. We we ask about these things, I think. Why are they so wonderful and so satisfying, even though that satisfaction is typically temporary? You know, the coffee mug does go cold eventually. I think it's because they are faint foretastes of the glory for which we are made. You see, the deepest longing of the human heart and the deepest meaning of heaven and earth are summed up in this, the glory of God. The universe was made to show it, and we were made to see and savor it. And it is the glory of God that Israel encounters today in our text. As you open your Bibles again to Exodus chapter 24, Allow me to remind you that we've summarized the main idea of the whole book of Exodus as this. God works sovereignly to save his special people for his own glory. So Exodus is the story of God doing one glorious thing after another. Despite all the thrilling moments in Exodus, as we said a few weeks ago, the burning bush, the ten plagues, the crossing of the Red Sea, the Ten Commandments, just name a few. Despite all of those things, This scene in Exodus 24 is probably the most dramatic, save for uh, God's glory descending on the tabernacle at the end of the book. This is probably the most dramatic scene in the whole book. If you remember last week, we stood, or two weeks ago, I guess, we stood witness to this ceremonial union between God and Israel. They were confirming the covenant together and as we studied this marriage between the king of the cosmos and the slave people he has freed we said that covenant in the bible is a promise of present continued and future loyalty and love and as we worked through the text we eventually learned that christians like israel enjoy peace with god only on the basis of a covenant that is confirmed with words blood and food We said our inclusion in the new covenant is confirmed when we, with words, profess our commitment to Jesus Christ, give the I will of the marriage ceremony. When we complete that confession in baptism, which pictures our trust in the blood of Jesus to atone for our sin and bring us into God's presence, that's the I do of the Christian life. And then when we eat the celebratory food of the Lord's Supper, which pictures continued fellowship with God, which is the I still do, or the covenant renewal within the Christian life. And today, as we consider that same chapter, we want to remember that that's the backdrop against which uh, these events take place. I'm going to take a look at the verses that we neglected a little bit last time together. They were relegated to the background, and so now we're going to bring them into the foreground as once more we consider Exodus 24. It's still true that the main idea of the chapter is that God makes his people his own, 
through his word, blood, and food. But today we're going to focus on the consequence of that union, the consequence of God making his people his own. And so our main idea this morning is that the glory of God dwells with Israel. The glory of God dwells with Israel. We're going to take it in two parts, see and wait. That would have sounded better, wait and see. I could have flipped them. Let's, Let's pray. Father, wean us from our obsession with trivial things. Incline our hearts to your word and the wonders of your glory. Change us from one degree of glory to another until you return to fill us with the fullness of yourself. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would apply your words to our hearts now that we might be conformed more and more to the image of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Help us to honor him in our time together. And it is in his name that we ask these things. Amen. Let's look at verse 9. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of of, of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet as if it were a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. I think one of the first things we want to notice is the distinction between the people, the elders, and Moses. And back in the first couple verses, if you just drop down there and look at verses 1 and 2, uh, we have the same kind of formulation in verses 1 and 2. It tells us that people aren't allowed to come close to the Lord at all, like they remain at the base of the mountain. The 70 elders with Aaron and his sons are allowed to come and worship from afar that's at a distance. They're allowed to get a little bit closer. And then only Moses actually gets to come near the Lord. And, and this is important because while this chapter focuses most prominently on the union of God and his people in covenant, it's also teaching us how God is going to relate to his people. Right? Ultimately, it's about the, the preparation of the tabernacle, which is going to be like a portable version of Mount Sinai, right? Got same rules. The people will only be able to approach God from a distance. Their representatives will be able to get a little bit closer. And then only the high priest, the federal head or representative of all the people, will be able to come really near to God. Only the high priest will be able to enter God's presence. And so the point of this tabernacle and Uh, of the tabernacle and of this experience right now on Mount Sinai will be to show us that God is in relationship with his people and that he dwells with them. But at the same time, there's an intimacy in this relationship, but there is also separation. There is a holiness of God that for Israel is unapproachable, save for when they approach him through their mediators. Now, as we observed last week, the elders are eating in the presence of God and they don't die, which is a big deal because at that time, and it's true, if you would be in the fullness of God's presence, you would die. But they're able to be welcomed into his presence on the basis of covenant. They don't see the full splendor of God's glory, but they do get a glimpse of it. And and to catch even a glimpse of God is to behold beauty that is dazzling beyond all imagination. 
and perfect beyond all thought. I mean, this is a spectacular experience. And the text tells us their eyes don't even get above his feet. I mean, and how awesome his feet are. How valuable and holy those feet are. Uh, the stone that they describe, I'm going to butcher the name of the stone. It's like a sapphire. It's blue. It's clear. You can see through it. It's called like lapis louise or something. I, I can't say it. You can look it up. At any rate, it was a precious stone uh, during this time in the ancient world. And here you have the feet of God treading upon it. I mean, you wouldn't do that with something valuable, right? You put it in a safe place. You don't put it on the ground and walk on it. God's value is greater. He is more holy. I mean, just his feet elicit praise. Just his feet leaves the narrator saying, they lived. God didn't lay a hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. They beheld his feet and ate and drank. He's awestruck by this. God is glorious. They get to eat and drink and fellowship with him. The glory of God dwells with Israel. Story continues. Verse 12, The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone which are with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua. Uh, again, this is the second time we've seen Joshua kind of name-dropped in the book of Exodus because uh, people know who he is. He's actually going to go up on the mountain with Moses, and then the text doesn't tell us if he goes into the presence of God with Moses. I don't think he does, but we, we're just left to guess. Nobody can really say for sure. Anyhow, so Moses rose with his assistant Joshua. Moses went up into the mountain of God, and he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we return to you, and behold, Aaron and her are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. And so Moses is saying, I'm going up onto the mountain. It's going to be a little while. I'm going to have to wait on God. And so as you wait down here, these guys are in charge. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming or a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of all the people of Israel. Moses and Joshua, they go up on the mountain to wait. They wait six days and then even some more as they spend time with the Lord. Israel can see the glory of the Lord like a consuming fire atop the mountain and they wait at the bottom and as I was studying this text and thinking about all the waiting that was going on, uh, I have a we my mind works in weird ways sometimes, but I couldn't help but think of, there's an old country song, it's not that old, I guess, old to me, there's a country song called Waiting on a Woman by, by Brad Paisley. I don't know if y'all have ever heard it, right? The lyrics describe how this old man has throughout his life had to wait on his wife in various situations. Easy to relate to, I think. But the song, ha it has an unexpected line in the chorus. Well, here it is, here it is. Unexpected. He says, she'll take her time, but I don't mind waiting on a woman, right? Herein lies the irony of the song. The old man so loves the woman who has become his wife that he doesn't mind waiting on her. He knows that her beauty and her company will be worth the wait. There's a happy willingness in his waiting. 
I suspect that this was kind of the disposition of Moses and of Israel. They have great expectation. They know something awesome is happening. They're in relationship with a holy God, and they are happily waiting on him. I did have this question, though. Why are they waiting, right? Why doesn't God just teleport Moses up on top of the mountain, give him the stuff, teleport him back down? Done. Or like at least make him flash fast, right? <laughs> up and down. Like, I don't, I don't understand why they have to wait. I think that the best suggestion that I came up with for why they needed to wait was that this is another test of Israel to see where their loyalty and their devotion lies. If you remember on their journey to Sinai, the people were tested to see if they would listen to the voice of God and obey his word. Remember, it was during the time in the wilderness that people saw God make bitter water sweet, provide for their food daily with manna from heaven. It was in the wilderness they drank living water from the rock that was struck. Each time they failed the test of their faith. Each time they were reminded of their dependence upon the provision of God. I said that tests are, are generally designed to see the truth about what you know and to teach. And this is what happened when God tested or trained Israel in the wilderness. That he is using adverse circumstances to lay bare the truth about the hearts of his people and to shape the hearts of his people. I think that likewise, the required wait for Moses to enter God's immediate presence and to return with the instructions about life and faith and practice and worship, th these are serving as a test to the people. And it is a test that they will fail. Right? The waiting that Israel is called to here turns out to be a prelude to the famous golden calf incident. Right, They don't wait. Moses is up on the mountain. He's hanging out with God. And Exodus 32 opens with these words. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain... The people gathered themselves to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. And then in verse 7 and 8 of chapter 32, God says to Moses, Hey, uh, your people are sinning, right? Go down, for your people whom you brought out of Egypt have corrupted themselves. I love this, like, uh, it's God's people, right? They just became God's holy people. But he's saying, Moses, your people that you brought out of Egypt. It's like my, when Chelsea and I, when our kids are misbehaving, they're her kids. They've turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. Instead of happily waiting on the living God, they worship dead idols. Despite Israel's union with God, their hearts do not beat after him. The heart of the problem is quite literally the problem of the heart. By forcing his people to wait, Yahweh is exposing once more their sin and their need for atonement. Once more showcasing the divide between his holiness and their sinfulness, even though they are right at the cusp of his presence. Even though Moses will enter his presence on their behalf, there is still a, a sort of separation. Israel hasn't sinned yet, though, uh, in this chapter. They haven't made the golden calf yet. They can still see God's glory dwelling on the mountain. And so they wait, and Moses waits. And then verse 18 happens. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. 
And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. This verse is really spectacular, but before we address I want to clear away some of the brush. Uh, did Moses really stay on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights? Well, let's see what some smart people say, and then I'll tell you what I think. Uh, Keelan Delich comment. The number 40 was certainly significant, since it was not only repeated on the occasion of Moses' second protracted stay upon Mount Sinai, but occurred again in the 40 days of Elijah's journey to Horeb, the mountain of God, in the strength of the food received from the angel, and in the fasting of Jesus at the time of his temptation, and even appears to have been significant in the 40 years of Israel's wandering in the desert. In all these cases, the number refers to a period of temptation, of the trial of faith, as well as to a period of the strengthening of faith through the miraculous support bestowed by God. Another commentator, Douglas Stewart, chimes in, 40 has an idiomatic usage in Hebrew, conveying the same sense that dozens or a great many can in English. Sometimes it's used literally to mean 40. That's one more than 39, if we're keeping track. But other times... Its more general meaning is apparent, as probably in the flood story, or in the account of the scouting of the promised land in Numbers 13, or other contexts as well. And so did he really stay up on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights? I don't know. Right? I, don't, I don't know that length of time is necessarily that important to our purposes here. I think this is certainly a significant season in the life of Israel, and it is a time of testing. Right? They're going to fail this test of their faith. But what's most important in this verse is that Moses is entering God's glory. That's what the whole book's been about to this point. If you want to remember, uh, if you can't remember the big sentence, like God is working sovereignly to save a special people for his own glory, main idea of Exodus, maybe the whole Bible, you can you remember it this way. God's people, God's glory. That's what Exodus is about. It's about God taking his people out of slavery and freeing them and bringing them into his presence. His glory is what the book is about ultimately. And here we have Israel, by way of her mediator, entering into the glory of God. And she is enveloped in the glory cloud. The glory of God is dwelling with Israel. It is truly spectacular but it does not hold a candle to the situation of the Christian. See, the church, by way of our mediator, the true and better Moses, Jesus Christ, is not just enveloped with glory, but indwelt with glory. Through Jesus, the glory of God enters the Christian. The people of Israel see God but it isn't enough to keep them from betraying God. We said earlier that the heart of the problem is quite literally the problem of the heart. And seeing God, believing and truly beholding God in his majesty, it's not a matter of sight, but a matter of the heart. This is just what Jesus tells Nicodemus in John 3, right? Nicodemus comes to him at night under the cloak of darkness and asks, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher, come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus says to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Truly, truly, I say to you, 
unless one is born of the water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of Spirit is Spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know from where it comes or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. It's a really famous text, uh, and I think every time I read it, initially I go, what's going on here? Is Jesus like articulating some weird kind of reincarnation? Like, no, that's not what's up. He's simply using poetic language to describe the real and significant radical spiritual transformation that must take place for someone to see God, to see, believe in, and follow Jesus. This is a theological word for it is regeneration, right? It's a whole new person, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And then in Titus 3, 5, we studied Titus recently, so you'll remember. He, that's God, saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of, and here's that big theological word, regeneration, which means new birth new life, being born again, the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. The the, the new birth to which Jesus is referring and that is described throughout the New Testament is actually in fulfillment to something God promised back in Ezekiel. It's a pretty uh, popular verse. You might know it. It's Ezekiel 36, verses 25 through 27, wherein God says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God's people get a true and brilliant glimpse of his glory and are transformed by his beauty when his Holy Spirit causes them to see with their ears by changing their hearts. See, God the Holy Spirit indwells us with God's glory so that we might see and savor our glorious God. Friends, the the Christian life from beginning to end, I think, can be accurately summed up in beholding God. Behold Him. Israel beheld His glory upon the mountain and in the tabernacle, but we, we get something better. We get to behold his glory in Jesus, the one who tabernacled or tented, you said last week, among us. Jesus shows us who God is. He is the radiance of the glory of God, Hebrews tells us, the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus is the culmination of God's self-revelation. If you want to know what God is like, you have to look at Jesus. Behold him. How? By taking your eyes off of yourself. John Piper writes, We are all starved for the glory of God, not self. No one goes to the Grand Canyon to increase their self-esteem. We go because there is greater healing for the soul in beholding splendor than there is in beholding self. Indeed, what could be more ludicrous in a vast and glorious universe like this than a human being on the speck called earth 
standing in front of a mirror trying to find significance in his or her own self-image. It is a great sadness that this gospel of self is the gospel of the modern world. Thankfully, it is not the Christian gospel. Into the darkness of self-preoccupation has shown the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. The Christian gospel is about the glory of Jesus, not about me. Christian, do you glory in the glory of God? Or do you glory in yourself? Do you spend more time before the mirror in the morning than you do before the scriptures? Do you see and savor Jesus? Let me implore you, Christian, and if you're here and you're not a Christian, let me implore you with these words of Charles Spurgeon, to behold Jesus and be healed. Behold the man in the garden of Gethsemane. Behold his heart so brimming with love that he cannot hold it in, so full of sorrow that it must find a vent. Behold the bloody sweat as it distills from every pore of his body and falls upon the ground. Behold the man as they drive nails into his hands and feet. Look up, repenting sinners, and see the sorrowful image of your suffering Lord. Mark him as the ruby drops stand on the thorn crown and adorn with priceless gems the diadem of the king of misery. Behold the man when all his bones are out of joint and he is poured out like water and brought into the dust of death. God hath forsaken him and hell surrounds him. Behold and see, was there ever sorrow like unto his sorrow that is done to him? All ye that pass by, draw near and look up upon this spectacular grief, unique, unparalleled, a wonder to men and angels, a prodigy unmatched. Behold the emperor of woe who had no equal or rival in his agonies. Gaze upon him, ye mourners. For if there be not consolation in a crucified Christ, there is no joy in earth or heaven. If in the ransom price of his blood there be not hope, ye harps of heaven, there is no joy in you, and at the right hand of God there be not pleasures evermore. We have only to sit more continually at the foot of the cross to be less troubled with our doubts and woes. We have but to see his sorrows. And of our own sorrows we shall become ashamed to mention. We have but to gaze into his wounds to experience the healing of our own wounds. For it is upon the cross that God was putting to death our sin. It was the suffering that we deserved. The wounds we deserved fell upon him. Oh, that we would behold this Savior, this King, and give him our lives. Behold him and be saved. Look upon the blood of the Savior and be healed. He is your substitute. It is only through his blood that your blood is spared. Jesus gives up glory so that we can receive 
glory. He takes the wrath of hell so that we can receive the blessings of heaven. This is grace. He takes what we deserve and we take what he deserves. Fellowship with God. Behold the glory of God in your Savior. See with your ears. Hear the gospel and believe. Faith comes from hearing. Oh, but friends, we, we, we don't only behold the glory of God in Jesus, though that is, is very good. We also behold the glory of God in his church. It is the church that Paul calls the fullness of Christ. And it is of her members that he writes, to her members that he writes, to you and me that he writes, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? The world needn't look at a temple in Jerusalem in order to see the glory of God. Instead, it can look at God's people who are indwelt with his Holy Spirit. Do you understand this, church? You are God's house. You're his tabernacle. Not this building, not a place. You. And I know we use the church as an institutional word. Where are you going? We're going to church today to refer to the building. But theologically speaking, the church is you and me. You are, as Ephesians 2 says, fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Church, it is you that Peter writes of. You he calls living stones that are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Christian, the glory of God dwells in you. I mean, this is wild. I mean, do you understand that until Jesus returns, that you are the most glorious thing anyone will ever lay eyes on? That means you, David. Right? That means you, Susan. All of us as the church are the most beautiful things anybody will ever lay eyes on because we are the body of Christ. And the body of Christ is the clearest picture of God's perfect beauty in all of creation. It is the church that displays God's glory most brightly. Yes, the mountains and the moon and the star and the skies. I stole that from a song. All of these things, they're really good. They tell us about God's glory, but not like the church. God's glory is most clearly perceived in the church when her members, when we live together in patience, forgiveness, justice, mercy, and love. Friends, we reflect God's own character by the character of our congregation's life together. Consequently, every aspect of our fellowship is worthy of careful evaluation. And I think we do well to ask ourselves these two questions. Is it clear 
to all that we encounter that God is in, with, and among us. And then subsequently to ask the question, how can we corporately and individually better reflect God's own character? Let us be reminded that as we behold the work of God in one another, that we are the only Jesus some people will ever see. You know, you are the only Jesus that some people are ever going to see. So do the hard work of doing unto others as Jesus has done unto you. Love sacrificially. Enjoy the good fruits of fellowship. Share the gospel in word and in deed. Make it obvious that the glory of God not only dwells with the church, but in the church. As glorious as the church is, she is still only a foretaste of the glory to come. Now, our life together as a church is the delectable appetizer that precedes the main course of life together in the new heavens and the new earth. And until then, we, like Israel, are required to wait for a fuller experience of God's glory. And like Israel, our waiting tests our faith. Our waiting reveals if we are sheep or goats. It shows us, shows us if our faith is in Jesus or if it remains in other things. It shows us if our faith is authentic or counterfeit. Waiting really is an underrated command in Scripture. It's repeated a lot of times. I tried to figure it out and count it and add it up, but it didn't work out. But it's in there a bunch of times, all right? Read through some of the Psalms, read through your New Testament. You're told to wait all the time. Some of you know what it's like to wait, right? I'm actually, probably all of us, most all of us have been to the DMV once or twice in our life, right? So you know what waiting is like. And, and oddly enough, the, the DMV teaches us a little bit about why and how we should wait as Christians. You wait at the DMV because you need something that you can't do for yourself. You wait because you are dependent upon them to obtain your license plate, turn in your license plate, get your license, renew your license, or whatever you do at the DMV, register stuff. Secondly, you wait at the DMV patiently, I'm sure, with expectation and hope for your number to be called. Thirdly, you wait at the DMV after a while. Uh, you make preparations in the form of the paperwork you're forced to fill out. Right? You're ready to be at the window before your number is finished being called. And they have that weird system so you can't figure out where you are in line. It's like R236. And like they haven't finished saying the, the six, and you're at the window, paperwork in hand, ready to go. Probably been there for two or three hours already. Right? Like you are ready. And you know that if that paperwork's not ready, you're going to be rejected, right? In sum, you waited the DMV because you are dependent on it. And you wait expectantly having made the proper preparations. Likewise, biblical waiting always requires action, is dependent, expectant, and makes preparation. God's people are to wait on him, uh, like a, a gifted athlete waits on the Olympics, right? The sprinter doesn't sit around and eat like Cheetos, watch movies. He's training hard. He's waiting for the Olympics to get here, and he's making preparation, Maybe a better example is uh, how you might wait for a famous dinner guest, 
right? If someone of significance is coming to your house, uh, the President of the United States, Queen of England, the band Queen, Madonna, Michael Jordan, Tom Cruise, or Taylor Swift, if somebody important is coming to your house, you are sweeping the floors and washing the dishes, right? You're waiting for their arrival by taking action. As that's coming out of my mouth, I realized I had guests this week and then actually made them do the dishes, and so maybe backwards. It's not that y'all aren't of significance to me. But when somebody important is coming to your house, you make preparations as you wait on them. Biblical waiting always requires action. Turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 25. A pretty famous parable of, you probably know, is the parable of the ten virgins, which is a little bit more confusing to our modern ears. It's, it's bridesmaids is how you can think about these young ladies. Virgin's just a word for young woman in Greek. And, and so uh, it's the ten virgins or the bridesmaids. <clears throat> Starting at verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil and their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a cry. Here is the bridegroom. Come out and meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast. And the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. This parable is aimed at teaching Jesus' disciples the importance of waiting for him with vigilance, ready to accompany him upon his return. In the story, the bridesmaids wait for the bridegroom, knowing they are dependent upon him to enter the marriage feast. They wait expectantly for his coming. They are like a, a child on Christmas Eve. Their hopes are sky high, but eventually sleep takes them as the night grows older. They wait, the sensible and true ones, having made preparation, ready to respond to the groom's voice before it falls silent. Lastly, we learn that those who did not make proper preparations were rejected. They were denied access to the marriage feast because the groom did not know them. Similarly, our waiting on Jesus to return in his glory reveals the true nature of our faith. See, that we wait and how we wait, it matters. When the people of Israel were required to wait for God's mediator to return, they saw he delayed and began making themselves other gods. I think like Israel, we too have our golden calf moments wherein we worship counterfeit gods rather than the living one. Career, money, family, power, sex, family, prestige, 
applause. We all turn away. Now, you might object there and say, yeah, yeah, yeah. But if I could literally see God like Israel did on top of the mountain, I would never sin. I mean, that would be pretty perfect, right? God's just right there, see the consuming fire. It's a good reminder. But I, I just don't think that's true. Uh, first, it's because you get to see more of God than they did. But you have the gospel and you have the church. Secondly, you've been given a new heart. And even though we've been given a new heart and we are saved from sin's penalty and sin's power, we are not yet saved from its presence. We are waiting to be delivered from sin's presence. Evil is still alive. Though it's been defeated, it's still alive and well for now. It endures within us. It endures within you. Our selfishness still claws at the walls of our flesh and screams to be fed. In Christ, we've been given new hearts so that we desire the things of God. But we still sin. We still do what we don't want to do any longer. Our waiting isn't perfect, won't be perfect. But it must be persistent. It's when the waiting stops, we learn that faith is absent. Biblical waiting requires action effort. Waiting on the Lord means being daily dependent upon the substitutionary life and death of Jesus. He lived the life you should have lived, died the death you should have died, rose from the dead, proving his person and his power, and promises to give eternal life to all those who trust in him. It's only by putting your faith in Jesus, only by putting our faith in Jesus, that we can take hold of the promise of resurrection life and enjoy everlasting fellowship with God. Waiting on the Lord means watching vigilantly with a living hope for his return to make all things new. Waiting on the Lord means making preparation for his return by becoming in practice what he's declared us to be in Christ, which is holy. 1 Peter 1, 13-16 helps remind us of this, calls us to action. Prepare your minds for action. Be serious. And set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the, to the desires of your former ignorance. But as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Friends, don't be caught in rebellion, having ignored or forgotten the command to wait on the Lord. He comes. Don't reject the living God for dead idols, but wait in faith with patience for the coming of the fullness of his glory. Biblical waiting, painful as it may be, expresses dependence, expectation, and preparation. So wait dependently expectantly, and be prepared. Wait with your eyes affixed to the glory of God, displayed in his Son and his church. Wait for the glory of God by beholding the glory of God. Wait for the glory to come by beholding the glory that has already come. See and savor Jesus. This is the application today.
See him in the gospel and see him in his people. Be absolutely smitten by the beauty of our glorious God and King. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you have said to us, let light light shine out of darkness. And then indeed you shine the light of the gospel into our hearts so that we might know your glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Father, you've given us this extraordinary privilege. We ask that you would help us to hope for what we do not see, to wait for it with patience, with a happy willingness, eager expectation, like children on Christmas Eve. Father, we wait for your return. Long for it. Groan for it. Because we've had just a small taste of it. And we know that you are good. That it is good. And we want more. More of your glory. And so we pray that you would come quickly and magnify your name. And it is in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.